to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been arguing that there is a difference between those people who are in God, in Christ, and those people who are in the world. The people who are in the world are in a darkness where they cannot comprehend the things of God. And he argues that despite the fact that they think they're very wise, very smart, that in their own worldly wisdom, they simply did not know God. And that the foolish things of the world have come to know God simply because God has revealed himself to them And he did it that way on purpose to confound the wisdom of the wise. As he's drawn these contrasts all the way through chapter 2, I'm sorry, I have a lozenge in my mouth. At the end of chapter 2, in these contrasts, he's pointed out, verse 14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so there are fleshly men, there are worldly men, there are men of this natural world who don't have the spirit of God. And therefore they cannot understand spiritual things. It takes God to open your mind, to open your heart, to enlighten you to the things of God. To reveal to you the things of God or you're simply not going To understand them. And in verse 16, he quotes from the Old Testament for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct the Lord. And then by contrast, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now let's talk a few minutes before we delve back into chapter 3 about what that means to have the mind of Christ. First and foremost, it is a contrast to people who only have a natural mind, to people who only have the mind of this world, to people who only comprehend natural, physical, worldly things. Those people who have the mind of Christ are able to understand spiritual things. But what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And you're certainly welcome to Help me out here. I'm going to give you a couple of passages we're going to look at first. But if you have something that you'd like to contribute to what it means to have the mind of Christ, feel free. Let's start in Philippians chapter 2. Because when I think mind of Christ, that's the passage that I just most naturally gravitate to. Right after the Galatians and Ephesians, you'll find the Philippians And Philippians chapter 2 does talk about having this mind in yourselves that is also in Christ. Paul can only say this to saved, redeemed people. He can only give them the imperative that they have this mind in them that is also in Christ. He can only say that to people who have the gift of the Holy Spirit and have the enlightenment of God. He can't possibly say this to worldly, natural people because they cannot have the mind of Christ. But listen to this instruction to the church. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude. The King James says, have this mind. Have this attitude in yourselves that also was in Christ Jesus. Here's our example. Paul has just said, don't worry about yourselves, worry about others. 
Put others ahead of yourselves. Esteem every man as better than yourself. Worth sacrificing for. Worth taking care of. And the example that he's going to give is what did Christ do for you? So one more time, we're going to see Paul in that sort of indicative imperative way. He's going to give an instruction. Be like this. Take care of each other. Care about each other. Put others first. But he's going to say now why you would do that. And it's because of the great sacrifice of Christ for you. And knowing that he has done all this for you, how should you be? So have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, don't miss that statement. Paul says Christ existed in the form of God. And yet... Even though he was equal with God, he nevertheless did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's a word that's spoken of in the Greek. It's talking about robbery. It's talking about a man descending on another man to steal something away from him. Christ was not interested in stealing any of the glory of God, even though he was in all ways, in all shapes, in all accounts, Completely God himself. But God, we know, God by nature, God by character, God cannot die. And so Christ came to die for those people who belonged to him. And he did not regard equality with God something that he had to steal away. Something that he had to grasp. Something that he had to grab at. Rather, he was willing to lay down that form of godliness, empty himself. Well, that's what Paul says. He emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he, remember who he's talking about, he, though equal with God, he, though one in nature with God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I don't think we sufficiently grasp what the atonement of Christ really was, what it really means. It means that the high and holy majestic God bowed down so low to save sinful, wretched enemies like us he divested himself and took on the form of a servant. Really shown by the fact that at the Last Supper, he stood up and girded himself with a towel and washed the stinky feet of his apostles. Showing himself to be their servant, their slave. And he said to them, what I've done for you, now do for each other. So he's the example. He was the first one to lower himself to servanthood on behalf of others. And Paul emphasizes that this servanthood that he took on was a servanthood that led him all the way to the ignominious death of the cross. And there's nobody in this room, I don't care how much you like each other, there's nobody in this room that has been nailed to a piece of wood on behalf of other people yet. But that is your example. That is still the example that Christ left us. He became servant to his people. Therefore, he could say, Paul could say, have that mind. Have that attitude. The attitude of complete sacrifice on the behalf of those who don't really deserve it. We as human beings typically think, well, I will be good to Thaddeus. I'm picking on you because it's your birthday. I will be good to Thaddeus, but that's because I expect Thaddeus to be good to me. If Thaddeus does enough good things for me, I will also do good things for him. That's a fair exchange. But that's not the way Christ worked. Christ did not redeem people who were actually good enough and lovable enough. He didn't redeem champions. He didn't redeem the strong and the committed. He redeemed sinners. He redeemed his enemies. He redeemed people who previously hated him. 
And he changed those people. And he paid their sin debt altogether, utterly, completely in the finished work on Calvary. And he did that for people who were not benefiting him. He was not being improved by them. But the reason that he saved these particular people who hated him, who were enemies, who despised him, was so that his father would be glorified. And that's the mind we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have the thought, okay, uh, Thaddeus and I, let's say Thaddeus and I don't get along. This is not true. But let's say I really despise the fact that Thaddeus is a mere 27. And I do. But let's, but let's say we're not getting along. There's something about Thaddeus' personality that just rubs me wrong. I just don't like that he's so young and good-looking and strapping and all that. There's something about Thaddeus that I just don't get along with. Well, then what should my response be? How should I respond to Thaddeus? There are two ways I can respond to him. I can be cold. I can distance myself from him because he bothers me. Or, for Christ's sake, I can be sacrificial the way Christ was. And I can show Christian love and humility and kindness to Thaddeus despite the fact that he rubs me the wrong way. And that's the mind that we're supposed to have. And I think that this is part of what Paul means by saying, have the mind of Christ. Be aware of what Christ's mind was, which was sacrificial. Look, the highest form of love, we've talked about this before, but the highest form of love that we find in the Bible is this agapao love. And the definition that I've given for agape The definition that I've given you before is to do what is good for the one who is being loved despite the fact that the one being loved doesn't know it, doesn't want it, isn't looking for it, that you're not even benefited by it. But you're doing what is right for the person who is being loved because you are sacrificially loving them. And if we can get a hold of that, if we can ever rise to that kind of agape love for each other, well, then that'll improve our marriages, it'll improve our family life, it'll improve our relationships with one another if we recognize that the value that any person has is the value that Christ puts on them, that they are a saved, redeemed person who belongs to Christ, and for that reason we are going to sacrificially love them, well, then that's the highest form of Christian love. And I do believe that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those that are in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every knee is going to bow, verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is also part of the mind of Christ. He sacrificed himself. He humbled himself. He did die the ignominious death on the cross so that his father would be glorified, and then his father glorified him. That's the mind we're supposed to have. That the way we treat each other, the way we love each other, the way we interact with each other needs to be driven by a larger purpose, a larger cause. And that larger cause is the glory of God and the truth of God's word in our lives. And the result will be God will glorify us. We'll end up in his heaven when it's time for our judgment. He won't even talk about our sin or our trespasses, or the ways that we've offended him, he's going to talk about his son, who is fully adequate and fully sufficient, and who has utterly covered our sins. And we're going to be glorified forever in heaven. So if you get that, if you see the end game, if you know what the larger cause is, then you can get along with Thaddeus. You understand what I'm getting at? I know I keep using you as an example, but... 
He's like the nicest guy in the world. He's so easy to like. And so that's one part of the mind of Christ. Turn to Romans 12. If memory serves, right after the book of Acts, look at the book of Romans, go to Romans 12. Because Paul also says in Romans 12 that we are to renew our minds. He again is going to talk about the difference between the worldly mind, the natural mind, and having a renewed and enlightened mind. Let's just start at verse 1, which is one of my favorite verses here, so that you can understand this verse. Let me give you a quick bit of background. For 1,400 years, the Israelites have been sacrificing animals. Sheep and oxen and doves, and they've been sacrificing these animals after they laid their hands on them, a transference of guilt from themselves to the animals, and they would kill the animals as a sin offering. Okay, now Christ has come. Christ is the ultimate sin offering. God accepts his once-for-all offering, and sin is no longer an issue. So then... Paul addresses to the Jews who are at Rome, he addresses the question of, well, then should we still sacrifice? And his answer is yes, but the sacrifice now is a living sacrifice instead of a dead sacrifice. It's you yourself rather than an animal. And the way that you sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice is to live for God. So he's saying that there is sacrifice in the Christian life. You're going to give up on yourself. You're going to give up on what you'd prefer to do. You're going to give up on your proclivities and your sinfulness. You're going to sacrifice yourself, but again, you're doing it for the larger cause. You're doing it for God's sake. So he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So when you're living a holy life, when you're being set apart from the rest of the world, when you're living in a way that you seek to please God, yes, there's a sacrifice involved. But that is a sacrifice of yourself and your own body. And then he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Anybody got a King James here? The King James rendering of the last half of that verse. What does it say, Betty? Verse 1 there, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I like that translation. The NASB translation is accurate. That is your spiritual service of worship. But I like the King James rendering that that is your reasonable worship. That really is the way you should be living. And if God is God, and if he has redeemed you, and if you are a sinner and recognize that about yourself, then laying down your own body as a living sacrifice to God is only reasonable. It's how you ought to be. So I think that verse adequately sets up verse 2, where he's going to talk about conforming either to the world or transforming your mind to the things of Christ. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, worldly men can't do that. Fleshly men can't do that. The people of the world who don't, have the spirit of the, who don't have the spirit of God are never able to determine what's good or acceptable to God. Those things that are complete, which is what the word perfect means. So don't be, there's the imperative, so don't be conformed to the image of this world. Be different than this world. Be holy. Be separate from this world. And the only way to do that is to have your mind transformed so that you can recognize the things that are good and acceptable and perfect. 
For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, that's in your mind, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So this concept, this idea of have the mind of Christ, think about what Christ did and therefore live your life appropriately, this is an idea that Paul brings up in several of his letters, that we would have our minds transformed by the reality of what Christ has done for us. And I think that's what he means at the end of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Anyone have anything to add to that? Yes, sir. Uh, John 15, verses 12 and 13. Read it for us. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this. He lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do my commandments. And I think that's the first class condition. Yes. Love each other the way I've loved you. Now, how have I loved you? I laid down my life. So now love each other in that same sacrificial lay down your life way. Good choice. Any other choices? Any other verses that you think add to this discussion? No? Well, then we will work our way into chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. All of that was technically introduction. Let's start reading at verse or at chapter 3, and then we'll get into the new stuff. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive the meat. Indeed, even now, you're still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For one of you says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos. So are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I don't like the word opportunity. It's added there by the translators. Even as the Lord gave to each one. That could be faith, that could be, there's a a variety of things that could be. And so Paul then says, here's the deal with me and Apollos. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants... And he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's how far we got last week. We're now starting at the new stuff. Paul has been saying, here's the situation. Here's the the blueprint of how God is working. God is using secondary causes like me, like Apollos. He's using us in order to teach you But even as we teach and instruct, it's always God who actually makes it grow. It's always God who gives the increase. This is very much like uh, any of us who have ever planted gardens. Has anyone ever picked up a seed and yelled at it and made it grow? None of us. We We can yell at a seed all day long. Grow! Do something! And that seed's just going to sit there in your hand and be a seed. It's just not going to work. You have to put it in the ground. You have to water it. That's what he's saying. I planted. Apollos watered. But then something happens to a seed that we have no control over. No matter what we do, we can't make something sprout. And so God has to make sure that the plant sprouts from the seed. 
He uses that analogy in order to say, that's how things really work. I plant Apollo's waters, but the increase, the growth, the church, this is all God's dealing. This is all God's doing. He accomplishes that all by himself. And now he's going to use another equatable example in order to say this is how it works. He's going to say, I'm like a master builder. And I have, as the master builder, I've laid a foundation. And the foundation is Christ. I have laid out the foundation. But, as you know, in Paul's evangelistic journeys, he would go into a city and he would plant a church, but then he would continue to travel after he had taught people how to lead the church. He would then go on to the next city and plant another church. And then he would send Timothy sometimes, and he would send others in order to find elders, men of good report who could handle the scripture, and they would become the leaders. And so those people would build, the leaders would build on the foundation that Paul laid. So with any building, this building we're in right now, this building is on a concrete slab, The concrete slab underneath your feet will exist whether the building exists or not. If a tornado blows through Smyrna and knocks down these walls, when you dig out all the glass and wood and everything else, underneath will still be a concrete slab because the concrete slab is the foundation for the building. And everything else that is the building is built on the concrete slab. You understand? Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying. I laid the foundation of the building. I've given you the gospel. I've laid that foundation. Now, other men are going to come along behind me, and they're going to build on that foundation. Let everybody be really careful what they build on that foundation. Because when others come along and teach, when others come along and talk about Christ and talk theology they're just as likely to make up things that Paul didn't say think about what he said to the Galatians if anybody comes if anybody writes you a letter if it's an angel from heaven if they come and say anything other than what I've told you then let them be accursed and so he's real adamant about this I've laid out the true foundation of what it is And when others come and build on the foundation, be careful how they build. Now, if they build gold or silver, if they build good things, those things are going to last out into eternity through the judgment. But if what they build on my foundation is wood, hay, stubble, well, that's going to be burned away. So that's the next part of this argument. Now, let me address one quick controversy Out of context, if you just read this passage without seeing everything that came before it and after it, it's easy to say, well, this applies to everybody. But I don't think Paul is talking about everybody here. He's talking specifically about those people who are going to build on that foundation. He's talking about the teachers. I think this is one of the reasons that James said, don't be many teachers. Because you're going to come up against a stricter judgment. And he's about to talk about the stricter judgment. That your works are going to be tried with fire. So now let's read his argument. Now that you understand the, the layout of the argument. He says, for we, that's Apollos and Paul, Cephas. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field And then he changes the example of God's building. And I think at this point, Paul was about to write something about the field, since he talked about planting and watering. But then he thought, no, let me give you a building example. And so he changes to, you are God's building. And here's the way the building was built. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, As a wise master builder, 
I laid a foundation. And other people are building on it. But the foundation is laid. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So here's Paul saying, I have established what Christianity is. I have established the doctrine of Christianity. I have been going around establishing churches and teaching Christ to them. And when I leave, others are going to come. And they're going to say, oh, right. Now, I know that Paul taught you this. Let me tell you something else. And they're going to add on to that foundation that I've already laid. But be careful how you build. Now, we can all think of examples to this very day of people who are building on that foundation. And some are building good structures. Some are building on what Paul said, and they're right in line with the foundation. But there are others who, for various reasons, are building on that foundation, and they're building all kinds of wood and hay and stubble. And we have to know the difference. We have to understand what the good theology is. And so Paul himself says, be careful how you build upon that foundation. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So he said, I told you about Jesus. I told you what the Lord has taught me. I told you what I've learned from the other apostles. I have laid the foundation of Christ in your life. And this is why he said, among you, among you milk drinkers, I choose not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation. Now, if anybody comes along and builds on that foundation of Christ and him crucified and what they build is fanciful, imaginary, not what the apostles doctrine is, then they're building wood and hay and stubble and be careful. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, verse 12, now if any man builds upon the foundation gold or silver or precious stones, that would all be good. We're going to find out in a minute that those are the things that continue out into eternity. Or they build on it wood or hay or straw. Every man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Okay, let's talk about how clever Paul is here. Gold or silver, what happens when you apply fire to gold or silver or, let's say, diamonds? Purifies it. That's all it does. It makes it better. The dross becomes apparent. But when you're done, is it still gold, silver, and diamonds? It's still gold, silver, and diamonds. What happens if you apply fire to wood or hay or stubble? It destroys it. It burns it up. So Paul is making a very big difference here between people who in the judgment, their works are going to be burned away or their works are going to remain. And obviously the way that you have the works that remain is by building rightly on the foundation. If any man's work, this is verse 14, which he has built upon the foundation, if it remains, then he shall receive a reward. Oh, well, that's good. If you build on the foundation in a way that is right and true, then God is going to reward you for that work. And then he says, And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. That's contrary to he'll get a reward. Instead, he'll end up with even less. But he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. So what Paul is saying here is, within the church, Within saved people, there are going to be people who build properly and people who build improperly. 
And when the judgment comes, God is going to judge what is proper from improper. And if any man has built properly on that foundation, they're going to receive a reward. If they have built improperly on that foundation, their work, what they've taught, is going to be burned away. But then I like the fact that Paul includes, but they'll be saved. They're going to suffer some loss, but they will be saved because, after all, he's writing to the church. I saw a hand. Yes. It is a hard passage. Let me see if I can clarify it for you. Right. Right. Paul has already said what the foundation is. He's already laid out the foundation. It's Christ and Him crucified. That's the foundation of Christianity. So, like, for example, would baptism be Yes, because Paul advances the teaching of baptism. And so as a wise master builder, we would have to agree with that. Here's, I think, the most simplified version of proper teaching. Just say what the Bible says. If you're making something up, if you're saying something that the Bible doesn't say, then you really are building on that foundation wood, hay, and stubble. And these things are going to be burned away because they're not from God. They're from your imagination, which is a sinful imagination. And so I think the safest territory to stay in is to just say what the Bible says. There is an exhaustive amount of information in the Bible. So you're saying that there are true under-shepherds that could be teaching wrong things, but be true under-shepherds? I wouldn't necessarily say they're... Sure. I get it. I get it. Um, I wouldn't say they are true under-shepherds because they're clearly leading people astray. So that doesn't make them true under-shepherds. But they will be saved because they are still God's church. Remember that he's writing to Corinth. Remember that Corinth is full of people who, though they are a church, are completely confused misusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, abusing each other in the Lord's Supper. They're doing all these things, but Paul never says to them, thank God, never says to them, that's it, you're not a church. They're still the church, they're still going to be saved, but right now they're involved in all kinds of terrible things. So Paul says these terrible things are all going to burn. These terrible things are all going to be tried, and you're going to suffer loss as a result. The only reason that the church of Corinth feels comfortable doing the things they're doing is because their leadership is allowing it. And so he's saying, you've got to get back to what is true. Remember that he has said to them, you're not able to eat meat. That's why I came to you and fed you milk, because you're not able yet to be mature, grown-up Christians. Sound doctrine, for instance, this will help. For instance, when writing to the Ephesians, Paul launches in at the beginning of the letter with two chapters of the deepest theology you find in the New Testament. God's foreordination and predestination and Christ doing it all. and I mean, deep, deep theology. He starts the Corinthian letter with what is wrong with you. Now, that's different. Right? The Ephesian church seemed to be able, seemed to be grown up and able to absorb the deeper doctrine. The Corinthian church was so carnal, so wrapped up in their flesh, that Paul couldn't even go into the deeper things of God. He had to go back to the foundational things. So you're saying that he is like the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, and break Those are deeper things. Do you find them anywhere in the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians? No, you don't. Do you find them right at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians? Absolutely. Do you find them in the 
middle of the book of Romans? Absolutely. So Paul is capable of teaching in-depth things, but among people who are caught in their flesh, he has to bring them back to the basics. So he's saying, now that I've laid this foundation, though I'm not with you, I'm writing a letter. Now that I've laid the foundation again, just Christ, be careful what you do with that. Be careful how you build on that. Because there are going to be people who have been taught by Paul who do know the deeper things, who are going to be able to teach the Corinthian church the deeper theology of God. But there are also going to be people who are saying, it's okay at the Lord's Supper, have your own meal first and don't worry about the poor. Well, that's the wood, hay, stubble stuff. So always keep it in context. Always recognize that he's writing to the church at Corinth, but it is good instruction for all of us in that we are being warned to make sure that the teaching that anybody does about Christ is always building on that firm foundation. Make sense? Good. You're welcome. Yes? It may help to not really worry about specifically what's uh, milk versus food. I think in this particular passage, they're stuck with being divisive. <coughs> they can't grow in general. Because like a baby, you know, when you're on milk, you're a child, and it's all you... You know, bro, you can't do meat. And I think he's just saying they're just stuck in this. You know, they can't grow in general when they're stuck on who's up for Paul and who's, I can't, you know, he can't teach them anything else until they get this. And just like a baby can't get to meat until they get off the milk. So. I think what he said. That was good. And Dawn, this might help. Oh, wait, I see Steve's hand. Yes, Steve. She did, she did raise an interesting point, though, initially. It is possible for our motives to be absolutely wrong when we're teaching the absolutely right thing. There can be a teacher, a pastor, any leader who teaches correct doctrine but for the wrong reason. And if they do so, and I'm not saying they're not believers because I think they are, but for whatever reason, sin has corrupted them to the extent that they're trying to get the glory for themselves. We've known those 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 men who who glory in their knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and lord it over the people because you folks, you peons out there, can't understand this. Right, right. Um, so they're getting the glory for themselves rather than for Christ. Mm. That's going to burn up. I agree. Good point. Now, let me add one more thing, and this is a conversation that actually Dawn and I have both been part of. I know what you're thinking. I'm in your head. I know. I know this is what it's all about. I made a video a couple of years ago about Arminianism. And even though I agreed in the video that Arminianism is not the doctrine of the Bible and ultimately is heretical in the things that it says and teaches... At the end of the video, I said that I am not going to judge Arminians because that's not my job. I don't have the right to say that they're damned forever because they don't have their theology all straight. And part of the reason I said that is because of this. Here's Paul talking to people who do not have their theology straight, but they're still saved. And therefore, I didn't believe I had the jurisdiction to just go around condemning people. I think many of us were Armenians before we came to Right. Exactly. And so for all those reasons, I was Armenian for years. And yet in the mind of God, was I saved? Well, sure. I didn't have my doctrine right. I still think we're all growing in doctrine. And so I don't believe in salvation by perfect doctrine. I believe in salvation by Christ. And so I said in that video that if they love Christ, if their mind is on Christ, that my hope for them is better doctrine. And there was a group on Facebook that tore me up, tore me up because I said that, because they believe that you've got to dot every I and cross every T of the five points. Or uh, She's saying no. Right. They, and they do believe that, even though it's not in the Bible not anywhere. Fair point. And so I know that that's in her mind 
I know she was part of that conversation online. And so I know that she's thinking about and dealing with these items. But because Paul is dealing with a church that is very, very confused and doesn't have its doctrine right, and yet he says to them, you are saved, then I don't think we can say unless people have the right sound doctrine, they're condemned. If we're going to be Pauline, we have to say, that's up to God. And that's all that I said in that video, which I got beaten up badly for. But that's okay, because I think I took the biblical position. Yes, sir. Along those lines, Charles Edmund Spurgeon said a whole lot of things that he never said. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing I think he did say, someone asked him once if he thought John Wesley was going to be in heaven. Or no, he said... They asked him if he would see John Wesley in heaven. And Spurgeon's response was, no. I do not think so. I think he is going to be so much closer to the throne of God that I won't be able to get within sight of him. Yeah. Now, John Wesley is the absolutely perfect example of our many Absolutely. So, but I think that's the right attitude. Don't, don't go around judging. Go around being. What's the example we saw this morning? The mind of Christ. Go around being sacrificial. Go around caring for people. And if you find somebody who's in a fault, the Bible says you instruct them, you teach them, you bring them along, and you be patient and you be kind with them. And so that seems to be Paul's attitude. Let's finish up here. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? This is very, very important language because the temple of God was in Jerusalem. And three times a year, every Jew that could travel had to travel to Jerusalem And the feast had to be in the temple at Jerusalem. And the Passover lamb had to be killed at the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of religious worship among the Israelites and the Jews. And so now Paul is saying, you don't need that temple in Jerusalem anymore. Part of what made the temple special is that originally when it was built, when it was Solomon's temple, it contained the Ark of God. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, God's own presence would come down on the Ark of God. And so you knew that God was present in Israel on the Day of Atonement when he'd come down between the wings of the angels on the Ark of God inside the temple. I mean, this was God's dwelling place. And so that made it very, very special. But now Paul is saying, well, you've got the Spirit of God inside you. That spirit of God that used to inhabit the temple is now in you. And that makes you the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God. And because you're the dwelling place of God, you are God's property. And therefore, no one should destroy God's property. Here's what he says. If any man destroy the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. There are so many ways that we can apply this. There are so many people who are tearing down and destroying the temple of God. Christian people. You look at what's happening in the Middle East. You look at people destroying the temple of God, and the promise is God will destroy them. And think about, again, context. Within Corinth, there were people who felt that they were high and mighty. We're going to see it as we continue. People who thought that they, being well-to-do and have plenty of food, that they didn't have to care about the poor that were among them that also belonged to God. And they were, in effect, destroying the bodies of those people by not giving them food, by not taking care of them, by not being sacrificial to them. And so Paul has to write, that's not the way the church works. These people 
are the temple of God. They do have the spirit of God inside them. And if that's true, then treat them appropriately. Look, I'll bring this down to brass tacks. Remember earlier we picked on Thaddeus and we said that I should get along with Thaddeus for God's sake because God has chosen Thaddeus. God has put his own spirit inside Thaddeus. Therefore, I should see Christ in Thaddeus and I should be good to Thaddeus for that reason. Expand that thinking. What if Thaddeus is the temple of God? What if Thaddeus really is the dwelling place of God? Then who am I to treat that haphazardly? Who am I to destroy that? Who am I to tear that down? Instead, I should be building that up. Good for you. You're the temple of God. God dwells inside you. Well, I believe that God dwells inside me too. That makes us brothers. We should love those people. We should sacrifice for those people, feed those people, clothe those people, house those people. That's that gold and silver and precious stones, absolutely. And he says that those things are going to carry out into eternity. So, you are the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. It's set apart, and that is what you are. So, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age... Let him become foolish so that he can become wise. Any man of this age that thinks he's wise in the world, who thinks he's clever, who really thinks he's got it together, let him become foolish. He talked about the foolishness of preaching. He talked about the foolishness of the gospel to the whole world. Let those people who really think they're clever and have it all together, let them humble themselves, bring themselves down like Christ did, and humble themselves before the Lord of everything. And that's the way that they will ultimately become wise. You got it? Yes, sir. It's brilliant writing. We're nearly done. I saw that, by the way. I saw. Okay, we're nearly done. Let no man deceive himself if any man thinks he's wise in this age. Let him become foolish so that he can become wise because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, and once again he's going to jump back into Isaiah and he's going to say, it's written in our scriptures that he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. He's the one who's going to trip up the wise of this world. Do you ever get frustrated? I know I do. Do you ever get frustrated by the supposed wisdom of this world? By the cynics in this world? By the people who think you're stupid because you're a Christian? By the people who talk down to you because you're a Christian? Oh, you use Jesus like a crutch. All these things that they say to us, and they really think they're so far better than us, God's waiting to trip them up. God's waiting to show them that their wisdom means nothing. Remember, Jesus said that when certain people come in front of him and start talking about what they did, haven't we done great works? Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we, me, me, haven't I done all these things? He's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The day is coming when they're going to be tripped up. And and it helps to remember that. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, and this is from Psalm 94, he says, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless God knows do you really think do you really think that God Almighty is sitting up there in heaven going oh good thought oh I wouldn't have thought of that oh you're right your way of doing things is better than my way oh good I'm so glad you were around because now that you've told me how to do things 
God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, who is the very embodiment of everything that is the universe, the one who knows every star by name and how many hairs are on your head, that God is not waiting around for human beings to instruct him. He, in fact, knows the thoughts of the wise, and he knows that they are useless. And that's back in the Psalms. That's been in the scripture forever. And yet there are people who think that they are clever enough that God will accept them on the basis of their own personal cleverness. So then, let no one boast in men. Got that? Mm -hmm. Let no one boast in men. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Spurgeon. I'm of any theologian. I believe in John MacArthur, and he's the right one. And I'm a sprolist, and I'm a... Don't boast in men. Any boasting, any bragging, any advancement has to be about God and his son and his son being crucified for our sake. That's the only place to boast. Because everything, all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All these things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. You get Paul's argument? Got it all. Got it all. You've got it all. You've got it all. So don't be arguing about factions and don't be breaking into groups. Well, I prefer this. I prefer that. In the church, it all has to be Christocentric. It all has to be Christ and what he did for us. And ultimately, in our glorification of Christ, we are glorifying God. And we have the spirit of God inside us, making us the temple of God. And that is the very place of worship. We've inherited all things. And we're going to inherit all things. So what's the point of limiting yourself to a few things? I'm of that, or I'm of that. I'm of Christ, because he's got everything. And he belongs to God, and I belong to him. Got it? Got it, sir. Any questions? Those were good comments today. I appreciate all of that. Any other thing going on? You had your hand up just a moment ago. What were you, or were you just waving? Jim, Hi. I was going to ask a question, but I don't know if the question period has ended. Well, then, <laughs> ask no, a question. I, I did have a question. Uh, everyone that's building on the foundation, every man with uh, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, says it will become evident in the, in the day. So over time, with fire, it will become evident. So does that mean it becomes evident to us? In what way is this becoming evident, I guess, is the I, question. The word, I believe, means it's going to be exposed. Let's put it this way. There are people in the world right now who are building on that foundation and they're building wood, hay, and stubble and they think they're getting away with it. But in the judgment, that's going to be exposed. That's going to be made evident. That's going to be laid out in front of everybody and we'll all see that it's worthless. So the day that it's referring to is referring to future judgment, not... Yes, I believe the reference to in that day has to do with the day of judgment, especially with the references to fire and every man's works will be exposed as by fire, especially when you put that together with Peter's writing about the final conflagration and this earth being burned up and all that. There's a lot of fire language to the end of days language. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Good. Something else. Remember to pray for one another. Remember to take care of each other. Have a good week. I will, God willing, I will be here this Wednesday. And we will finally get back to 2 Kings. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.